This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martirano. On Saturdays, we're here and we're talking about the disease of addiction. Recovery Radio is sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, about which more a little bit later. Periodically, we like to go to people who know what they're talking about. I know that's rare in media to get somebody to talk about something they actually know something about. But we find there's great power and perhaps uh, help in the first-person account of people who have struggled with substance abuse and have now worked their way out to sobriety. And millions of people do. Millions of people manage to live in long-term successful sobriety. And it's important to remind people that that's possible. Retreat provides a lot of these voices to us through their alumni organization. These are folks that, as I said, have been through treatment perhaps multiple times, but now find themselves sober. And as part of a support network, uh, they are part of the Retreat's alumni group. We'll tell you all about that straight ahead. But our guest is... uh, on the telephone with us, Matthew Reeves. Matt is uh, uh, four years sober now, and he's going to share his uh, story of uh, substance abuse, his ultimate uh, sobriety, and how he got there on the program today. So we welcome uh, uh, Matt Reeves to the program. Matt, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, first, can I get you to speak up just a little bit? Absolutely. One of the things, yeah, yeah, that's great. One one of the things I say over and over again is that all stories of substance abuse and recovery are the same, except they're different. Um, so we're here to talk about you know those similarities and particularly the differences as they relate to you. Let's start at the beginning. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, so I was born. I was actually born in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, um, but we didn't spend much time there. Uh, pretty early on in my life, we moved up to uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, and that was really where I grew up. I've pretty much spent my whole life in Pennsylvania. And what about brothers and sisters? Uh, I have an older brother. He's, I mean, he's like pretty, he's like six years older than I am. So, um, you know, it wasn't, um, I guess that sort of brotherly relationship that I think some other people have who are, you know, maybe a little closer together. Because of the difference in age. Yeah, yeah, just because, you know, he was so much older than I was. So when I was growing up, you know, we were just at different spots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and characterize your, your, your family life in, in Hershey, what, mom and dad, and what, what, was, what was home like growing up? Um, I mean, I had, I mean, it was like the, the pretty ideal situation. I'm not going to lie. Um, I had two really supportive, loving parents who loved each other, who loved me and my brother. Um, they wanted nothing more than to give us, you know, whatever it was that we were going to need, you know, to succeed. Um, and it's something that I kind of talk about a lot sometimes when I talk about, um, you know, my early life and and, and all of that stuff is, is how... I think from the outside looking in, um, I probably had a lot of the resources that, that you might think that you would need, you know, traditionally mm-hmm. to succeed, yeah. you know what I mean? Quote unquote, succeed in life. Yeah. Why, is, why do you find it, why do you find it important to, to stress that when you tell people your story? 
Well, because I eventually, down the line, when I found myself like in a rut, so to speak, um, and really up against something that was uh, probably the, the biggest obstacle I've faced in my life, which is addiction, um, I utilized all these resources. You know, so I fell back on the parents. I fell back on the loving relationships. I fell back on the financial resources. I fell, I fell back on all of it, and I tried to throw all of these resources at this problem, and and it didn't work. Um, and so I guess that's kind of why I like to bring that up. And I bring it up because, like, I didn't. I just had a normal childhood. You know, I, there wasn't like trauma or there mm-hmm. wasn't like some major events that that kind of happened to me that i can point at and say that's what i'm going to blame this on right or that's what that's what i'm going to you know what i mean that's why it, 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 in hindsight as you look at your struggles and then your sobriety and the treatment that got you there it, is it important in your mind to eliminate the excuses i i think it is because I'm not going to be in a I'm not going to be in a position where I can be honest about why I'm doing what I'm doing or what I need to do to get better mm-hmm. unless I run those excuses out. Yeah. Yeah, it, what were you like as a kid growing up? Were you popular? Did you <laughs> carefree? What was that like? Uh I wouldn't say I was necessarily either of those things. I had an ability to adapt, I think. Um, and so I, I certainly was not carefree. I very much so cared about those things that kids, I guess, care about, which is like popularity and social value and all that kind of crap. Um, and I put a lot of stock into like other people's opinions of me and how I sort of fit in. Um, uh-huh. And so I adapted to try and fit in. Well, uh, uh, well I let me, a let me, lot, like a tremendous yeah. amount of social anxiety. Yeah, let me, I'm going to fo- focus on that. But, uh, finding your place in the world as a, as a young youngster is a pretty common experience. And you had a hard time doing that from, from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Did you? It, it just seemed, it seemed like everyone else it, it seemed like it came really naturally to other people yeah 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 did <laughs> more you, naturally than did, it came to me did you ever talk to anybody about that did you ever say to either uh, it's hard to say something like this to your folks and you say you weren't particularly close to your to your older brother but i mean did you ever have the occasion as a youngster to say to maybe a friend like god how come everybody seems to be having a better time than me no i don't i don't know it just I don't know. It never occurred to me. <laughs> right. But you knew. If I'm being completely honest, okay. I don't think it really ever occurred to me to, like, ask somebody. Because then that would kind of expose me. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's not you exactly know? something. And you say you felt this early on. What? How, how, how early did you have this, those feelings of not fitting? I mean, this is like middle school. You know what I mean? Like fifth, sixth grade. Yeah. Did your, let me ask you, did your parents recognize you as an unhappy middle schooler? or, or, or? No, no. Right. No, I wouldn't say anyone really did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's so, it's so it's so scary for people raising children because, you know, social anxiety for, among adolescents is pretty common, but uh, yours was a bit more um, damaging. When did you start, uh, what was the first time you had 
alcohol or marijuana? Or what, what was that? What's your history of drug use? Um, it's. I mean, it started with alcohol, and then I started smoking weed, and then. Um, At what age, Matt? So, man, I guess I was a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. That's so fifteen. Um, yep. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of the typical high school, someone's parents went away for the weekend and we came, we went over to their house. And, and I mean, it was, it, you know, <laughs> from the rip, people have been telling me <laughs> I should probably slow down with my consumption. Um, you know, I walked into that basement of my friend's house and, and uh, with, a, with a bottle of, of Bacardi 151, um, which is a particularly strong alcohol mm-hmm. and uh, um just drank until i pretty much passed out and like that was that has kind of been my experience but like from that point i mean it just was all kind of an innocent thing i think when it all started yeah you weren't you, know, the, o- you weren't the only, was, right you weren't the only kid doing this right no no absolutely not and i mean you know a lot of my friends were doing it um, the, the sort of groups that I eventually sort of worked my way into did these things, you know what I mean? Pretty regularly, or at least in the way that I wanted to do them. Um, and so it just seemed kind of a natural, natural course of things, you know, that, that this is, you know, oh, we're being kids, we're having fun. Yeah, it's probably reckless, but like, this is what kids do, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um. I don't know. Just there was there was a degree of sort of innocence and and maybe uh, naivety about it um, and normalcy. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just what you do. How much did you get in a lot of trouble uh, from drinking in high school? No, no, actually, no trouble at all. I I kept it fairly well concealed. I think. I, I'm, well, I think I don't know. It's the horror of this uh, this disease is that the better uh, you are at at it. Uh, the worse you're going to wind up becoming. I mean, if you you know if you'd gotten maybe in a little more trouble as a youngster, you might have been able to head this thing off at the pass. So, through high school, was there a regular progression here from alcohol to harder stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was. I don't know. I didn't really know. I didn't know what I was up against, or really what what was really going on. Um, but I can say that like, so from, from early on when, when I was doing things and learning things in high school and health class and like dare class and things like that, you know, I think a lot of people kind of make this list of things that they're just like never going to do. You know, I think that that's a normal thing. It's like, okay, (laughs) there's like, you know, the obvious heavy hitters like heroin and and cocaine and all of that stuff on there. And even, like, weed was on there for me, obviously, because they tell me it's this terrible thing. Um, And slowly, you know, as I progressed from alcohol to starting to, you know, using that in conjunction with marijuana, um, introducing other things, you know, psychedelics and and eventually cocaine and stuff like that, I just, I started crossing off a lot of those things on that list. Um, And really, by the time I graduated high school, I mean, there was just kind of nothing left for me to try, you know. Um, I had pretty much done it, done all of it. Including opiates? Uh-huh. 
Mm-hmm. Our guest is uh, a young man who's 25 years old now. After struggling with substance abuse for a lot of years, he's four years sober. Matt Reeves is uh, telling us how he managed to, to do all that. Uh, Matt, um, so you know, you're, you're, you're pretty heavy hitter. You said by the time you're graduating from college, you've done it all and doing it regularly. Mm-hmm. And then what's college? college can't be any, any different, right? Oh, no, I would say not. Um, I, so I went to Penn State. I went to Penn State main campus. Um, wonderful school. Uh, you know, I, I love that place. That place definitely has, holds like a, a special spot in my heart. But um, for me, there was, uh, more responsibility, obviously. Um, there was less sort of oversight. You know, I didn't have people breathing down my neck. There was a lot more sort of self, like, accountability and that I just had never had any real experience with. Um, and I was surrounded by, you know, if you've ever been there, uh, like on college game day or anything, it's a pretty uh, riotous place. Mm-hmm. So, I was, you know, I'm surrounded by this culture and you know all of this sort of behavior that's that's very conducive to what I've been doing my for my high school career as far as like drugs and alcohol uh, and so except for the I fact just, that you were abusing substances I mean high school you were you were preparing yourself in high school for the big leagues when you got to college, I mean, that's what we all do anyway. Only yeah. the problem with folks with this disease is that, you know, what they're able to do now is is harmful. So, but again, how are you functioning class-wise, family-wise, whilst abusing everything? So, I mean, that was definitely a struggle in its own. Um, I, I'd like to say that... I'm kind of just an intelligent person. Um, and so as far as academics went, like in high school, it was a pretty easy thing. I could skate by. I could show up and take a test and, and do really well. And, and, and it wasn't a difficult thing for me to do well as far as high school academics were concerned. Um, and so I just kind of took that attitude into my first year of, of college uh, and just ran it into the ground um, because I had no real, like, substantial study habits. I had no experience, like, like with, like, true academia. And so uh, that was definitely a struggle because, like, all of my time was taken up with, with getting loaded. Um, and I think that it, it there's one experience that I think is really telling of, of sort of how <laughs> that first year in college went and it's that um i was sitting there in my dorm room studying for final exams that i had the next morning and like i'm just trying to like learn all this stuff because i cut class all like all semester long (laughs) and uh it flashed across the tv screen that was the night that that they got like osama bin laden and um so it was pretty like kind of big deal it was like that was a patriotic event and like it flashed uh, screens of like downtown state college. And it was like the biggest party you've ever seen. And so it's like, 
I kind of have a decision, you know what I mean, about what I'm going to do in that moment. And it's, am I going to go down and have a good time and get, get drunk and get loaded? Or am I going to, like, do the responsible thing and study for these exams that I have and that I need to do well on the next morning? Um, and I think that that was a very good instance and a very good example of how alcohol and drugs uh, began to make decisions for me because I got up and I really didn't think twice about it and I went downtown. Uh, and I and I didn't even make, I didn't even show up to one of those exams the next morning. And so, that's kind of the wit. That's in a in a pretty summed up picture. That's like kind of how my college career started off. Um, you know, you I was able to kind of pull it together a little bit and figure out how to, <laughs> you know, function mm-hmm. um, and get passable grades while still, you know getting high and getting drunk. Um, Did you graduate from Penn State? No. I I ended up going to treatment. I was one semester shy. You know, uh, college is the worst place in the world uh, for someone with a substance abuse uh, problem, uh, someone with a disease of addiction, to be identified because the behavior of uh, a lot of people on campus you know, looks pretty much like what you were you were doing. Did you? How aware were were you that you were even by Penn State standards hitting it harder than most people? How aware were you of that? Uh, I I really didn't think too much of it until like it really until like kind of the end. Um, and I mean that's when a lot a lot of the more I guess hardcore substances. Uh, started to enter the picture on like a regular basis. For, for instance, what were you what were you what were you using? Well, yeah. I mean, once I started using heroin intravenously, it was like a wrap. You know, was that hard to get? Pay- no, yeah, no. You- I mean, not as hard as you'd think. Did you go looking for it, or did someone introduce you to it? Um, no, I was pretty much introduced to it. Uh, I mean, it was like the classic, like, oh, I'm going to get uh, Percocet or something like that. Uh, the guy doesn't have any of that, but he's got some heroin. Like, it's, you know, you hear that story a thousand times. Yeah, And you never had That's any hes- what You never had any hesitancy when, when it was offered. You went, okay, I'll, try, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, none at all. Yeah. Uh, and how long uh, were you, and then you uh, graduated against the intravenous use, right? Yeah. And how long did that situation prevail? Uh, I, um, I mean, right up until I went to treatment, I mean, it was about a year. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We'll uh, return to our guest, Matt Reeves, straight ahead. I want to remind you that its program is sponsored by Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Uh, they are absolute leaders in this field. They are a well-respected treatment facility growing now at West Palm Beach. They'll be in Connecticut very shortly. And uh, they're, they're terrific. And, and you, can, you can ask around if you have access to people who know, and they'll tell you what a terrific job Retreat has done. They give you uh, – they sponsor this program for a different reason, though. Um, they sponsor it as an informational tool. They, they want you to know everything you need to know about the disease of addiction – and if they can help you, they will. But they want you to get answers to tough questions, should that be necessary. To that end, here's their number, 
859-8808. Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, 855-859-8808. Matt Reeves joins us uh, to tell his story of substance abuse and now his four years of sobriety. Matt's a 25-year-old a fellow who had his serious a drug problem, as you can imagine, running the gamut from youthful marijuana and drinking right up to uh, IV heroin abuse. Uh, so, so Matt, uh, take us through that that situation. Now you are a year short of graduating, or a semester short of graduating. What, did you OD, or what happened? Um. Well, so I guess it was about. A year prior um, to to graduation, and I remember like being in this in in my apartment, and uh, you know I, I I got it in, and my roommates were like throwing this party, some some party, and uh, a bunch of my friends were going to be there, and um, I did what I needed to do to, to sort of like let like take a breath you know what i mean and relax and go out and join them and i remember like getting up and going to my door and like i reached for the door handle and i just like couldn't i just couldn't bring myself to like open it um and and i found myself at that moment in a position where like it like i was alone and or so it seemed you know what i mean it really felt that way um which is a position that I had been in before, you know what I mean? That has I've felt that way, you know, from a young age. Uh, I had I had been in a position like that, um, and I was there again, and um, and like the you know all of these like things that I had been using to sort of numb that and take away that feeling uh, weren't really doing the job anymore, and like that was like just a really clear moment that i remember of that being the yeah. case when you said and when you you said i want to back you up a second when you said you're you know regular night your roommates are going to have a party presumably you know your roommates are get along with them you're going to know uh, a lot of the people yeah. coming to this party so that's not unusual you say you needed to fix though you needed to do that so that you could function in this party what 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 does that mean? You mean you, you were anxious? You were you talk about struggling with depression and anxiety for a very long time? Is that what heroin alleviated for you? All that depression and anxiety? I think that it did. I think that it did. I, you know what what that depression and anxiety was a result of. You know is is can probably you know you ask ten different people you get ten different answers, but. Absolutely. It kind of took all of that away from me. It allowed me to have a full, you know, a full breath, a full heart, a quiet mind, and it allowed me to go and be in and of the world, really. It, you know, if I can, I didn't, I, that wasn't what was going through my head when I was getting loaded. But in hindsight, that's absolutely what was happening. So you had never had the opportunity, um, either as a youngster or an adolescent or now a college student, to talk to a mental health uh, expert about these social anxieties and depression and depression. You, you, you never sought any of that kind of psychological counseling. No, no. And I, and you know, I can't really tell you why I don't really know why, 
I guess it just never occurred to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, how how severe was your depression looking back on it? I mean, it got pretty bad, like sometimes. Um, I you know it was kind of general and mild most of the time, um, but there were definitely like low points where you know I would kind of like I you know I talked about you know previously in the in the show things that sort of seemed to come so naturally to other people seemed such a struggle and and it just was this idea that that I that if this was life if this is what I had to look forward to for the next however many years uh I'm just not interested I'm and never so, going to be I'm never going to be any good at that and unfortunately the yeah. that is life right yeah yeah, yeah. It's a little different than feeling bad because all your buddies are maybe better athletes than you are. This yeah. is this is this is a, a, a much deeper problem. You say you were some of the notes I've read that you sent me. You were in some dark places. How dark? Were 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 you depressed enough to think about hurting yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I had kind of expressed it. You know, I expressed it to a friend who. I mean, that was really probably the only time that I ever said it out loud. Um, that you'd but, been thinking about suicide? Yeah. What was your friend's and, reaction? I mean, I don't think that he... I mean, he was just a kid himself, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't... He was just kind of maybe brushed it off and, and said I was being overdramatic. Um, which is not his fault. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not in any way saying... No, yeah, like, no, I understand. How about panic attacks? Did you have panic attacks? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I would... Um, I actually just saw uh, on... This is this is weird, because I was watching, like, SportsCenter the other day, and there's a, a basketball player who, like, is going through... Right, uh, similar. Ke right. Kevin Love has said, yeah. the, has said in the past that he and has so, anxiety. So he would, like, take himself out of games... You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, said, said they had, like, headaches or dizziness or whatever. And I remember specifically using headaches as, uh, like, I didn't have a headache, you know, but, like, I, would, I played soccer for a long time in school. Uh, and I used that, migraines, as an excuse to, like, because I just couldn't get off the bench. Really? Yeah. And nobody ever talks about that. That that's one of the things Love said when he when he went public with his problems. So what did drugs do for you in that context? How did you feel uh, when you were high? Well, I, I mean, aside from the obvious sort of physical um, euphoria, you know, which everyone is going to experience, it, it really did allow me to. Because all of that stuff was kind of a product of a racing mind. You know, I just couldn't stop thinking about how I wasn't quite up to snuff. Um, and, you know, what heroin ultimately, and, and I mean, like all the other things too, but ultimately heroin did it the best, was it, was it kind of slowed that down or stopped it completely? Um, and so that I could sit at the dining room table with my family and have, you know, be a part of the family. I could sit in a room with some of my closest friends. I could be by myself. I could go to sleep at night. I could, um, 
you know, be in a room full of people I'd never even met before. Yeah, I think so many. I think so many people look at heroin addiction and think of it as a selfish, self-indulgent um, activity that's just about you know getting high and listening to music and. Not many people consider it in the context you just described it. You're using heroin at some point just to function, just to get through dinner, just to be able to go to a party uh, in college, right? Yeah. Is uh, you also uh, mentioned delusional thinking? What what characterized that for me? What kind of delusional thinking were you engaging in? I, um, well, you mean in the context of some of those bullet points? Yeah, and so some of the things you, you, you said you were struggling with. What's, explain for somebody who doesn't understand what, delu- I mean, ex- what, what, were you, what were you delusional about? So I guess when, I guess when I wrote that, um, that's more of a reference towards some experiences that I've had since I got sober. Um, absolutely, there was, like, a lot of delusional thinking going into, like, me and, and what my problems were and, and how I was going to, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and get sober. Um, but I've had a lot of experiences in sobriety where um, things on the outside haven't necessarily changed, and yet my feelings about them or my perspectives uh, towards them have have changed radically, uh, and that I think I believe is is really kind of what I was talking about when I said delusional thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this idea that so I had so after I went to treatment, I went to treatment. I went to this recovery house. I had been given sort of this open mind that you know I don't know why I was open minded or, or whatever, but I was, um, and I found myself you know in treatment, and I found myself in this recovery house, and I found myself kind of buying into the things that they were talking about um, as far as, you know, 12-step fellowships and, and you know, spiritual principles and, and the solution, what I ultimately found to be the solution to my problem um, of alcoholism. And so I had been about six months sober, um, which is like far and away the most amount of time that I had ever had sober. Um, you know, for me, it was a, it was a struggle to get a day, two days, three days. Um, and so I was prideful, you know, I, I had, I, I, I found myself in, um, California. I was on vacation and, um, I was like going down this boardwalk thing that they have out there and, it was like a beautiful day, as most days are in Southern California, uh, and I turned and I saw this like bar thing with like a rooftop bar, and and it just kind of like occurred to me, <laughs> like an intuitive thought or something like that, that uh, it was just a normal thought, like any other thought that I had that day, uh, that it would be nice to go in there and have a beer, um, and there was no tape to play through. You know, there was no, uh, oh, there, this is the pros and cons list. There's, you know, these are the consequences. This is what is probably going to happen if I walk into this bar. Right. None of that occurred to me. And so, I mean, that's kind of, again, that's what I'm talking about when I say, like, this delusional thinking is that I, 
no matter how much I know about what I have and what I'm dealing with, uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna stop me from walking into that bar because I did. I walked in there, uh, you know, with six months sober and a whole lot of information. Um, and it still wasn't and, and it still wasn't enough. I want to I, I want to pick up on that when we come back. I want to take the break here now. We're back on Recovery Radio with our guest uh, Matt Reeves. Matt is uh, incidentally the executive director of the New Life Sober Living Facility, and we're going to find out um, about that straight ahead. But I just want to sort of finish up Matt's story about getting to recovery. You 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 uh, your first attempt. And sobriety with and treatment was at the urging or ultimatum of your parents, right? Yes, it was. And um, what was your attitude going in then? I'll just do this to get them off my back, or where where were you at that point in your life? Um, I mean, I think that that I knew that there was a problem. Um, you know, I had known that there was a problem problem. You know, well before then, um, but. I I just wasn't sure, again, this is just like, I had no idea about what I was up against. Um, and so when I went into treatment, I went in with a whole bunch of like sort of preconceived ideas and notions and sort of conceptions um, about a lot of things and, and maybe a little bit closed-minded, but like at least a little bit willing, you know what I mean, to like take some suggestion. And so... You know, at every step along that way, I kind of was just sort of granted this willingness to take it a little bit of a step further. Um, And thank God I did, Uh, because I really don't know where I'd be had I made any other decisions than the ones that I made. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, I mean, that goes from, you know, whether or not I'm going to stay in treatment to whether or not I'm going to go to this recovery house and whether or not I'm going to listen to the people that were there. Well, so far you've been uh, you've been doing it right. It's four years of sobriety, so congratulations! Uh, Thank you. Amazing job. But uh, so, uh, sober living is an incredibly important uh, topic. We we haven't had enough time to deal with that today, certainly. But it's worth reminding people that treatment for this disease is not one thing or twenty eight days long or any of that. It's a process that goes on for your whole life if you're lucky and remain sober. A component of that is, you know, coming out of treatment, reintegrating into the, you know, the straight world, the real world, in a in a safe place, and that's where sober living comes in. Tell us about new life sober living. Uh, absolutely. So, um, just really briefly, I, I guess some backstory. Uh, I was sort of just given all of the the jobs that I've had, like with. Re- in relation to treatment, have just sort of presented themselves to me. I never really went looking for them. Um, and it was just so, sort of something that came along, and which I think is um, which I think is telling, you know what I mean? Uh, but I just like to say that. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, that recovery house that I had been living in when I first got sober, uh, I moved out, kept in really close contact with the guy who owned it. He's still one of my best friends today. Um, and he pretty much presented me with the opportunity to take over ownership of this place. Um, and I did, um, that place, you know, that, like I said, that, that house held a a very special place in my heart. Um, if it wasn't for 
the guidance, you know, from the guys that were there, uh, I don't know what would have happened. Um, and I credit the, you know, that environment to, to being um, a huge help to me and a huge factor in me staying sober. Yeah. And not just staying sober, but finding contentment um, and happiness in life. And so I wanted to, my goal is I wanted to continue that as much as I possibly could. Um, and I wanted to give that opportunity to someone else um, like me, yeah. you know, who well, might not know what they're walking into. Um, but definitely needs help. So we got a couple of minutes left here. What what two or three things should somebody be aware of or or look for in a sober living facility? Because there's a lot of places that say they offer sober living. Not all of them are real good. What should people be thinking about when they're looking for a sober living facility? Um. One of the biggest things that I have found to be uh, indicative of like a, a quote-unquote successful recovery environment is sort of the milieu of the people that are there. Um, and so that if there is this like family environment, um, you know, where, where guys are going to look out for each other and hold each other accountable you know, and, and hold themselves and the, and the guy next to them to a certain standard, uh, that's ultimately what's going to lift all of them up as a unit. Um, in addition to that, I think con uh, commitment to continuing care is really important. Um, whenever somebody contacts me and, like, asks me to go on a tour, I think that that's, like, one of those telling things as well. Um because some people are like, because I'm always like, oh, absolutely. You let me know when, and we'll go on a tour. Um, and they're, sometimes they're surprised, you know, because I've had people come and they said, oh, I went to such and such place, and they didn't, they didn't want me to take a tour before I moved in, which I think is, you know. That would be a red flag, yeah. So uh, we, we're, uh, we're, 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 we're out of time. I'm going to have to have you back to talk more about sober living. If people want more information about new life, what do they do? Is there a number they can call? Yeah, yeah, you can give my phone number a call. Uh, it's 717-884-1978. Uh, Matt Reeves, thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate your uh, time and uh, congratulate you on your sobriety and, and your work uh, with the sober living facility. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Thank you. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Uh, keep us in mind. Recovery Radio. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.